Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. All right, it's time to begin. My name is John Moser, Professor of History and Co-Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government Program here at Ashland University. Welcome to the second episode of our second season of Documents in Detail, TeachingAmericanHistory.org's webinar series. In each episode, we'll do a deep dive into a single document discussing the historical, literary, and rhetorical aspects of it while also analyzing the document's impact on American history, people, and thought. TeachingAmericanHistory.org is a project of the Ashbrook Center, a nonpartisan nonprofit based at Ashland University. We provide a variety of programs and resources for teachers of American history, government, and civics, all based on primary documents. In the next week, you will receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. To help us begin to think about the topics of this year's webinars, we are drawing speeches, letters, and writings from the Ashbrook Center's extensive document database available at TAH.org. You may participate in the discussion simply by typing your questions into the chat window at the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. You may do that at any time. I will be checking periodically uh, and uh, relaying the questions to our, uh, our, our discussants today. The subject of our program this evening is James Madison's Federalist 51. And to help discuss it are Jeremy Bailey, Professor of Political Science at the University of Houston, and Adam Seagrave, Associate Professor of Constitutional Democracy at the University of Missouri. Welcome, gentlemen. Very glad to have you here with us. Hello. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. So uh, there's lots that we can talk about here, but let's start with just a very general question. Um, Federalist 51 is, is, is generally regarded as, as one of the very most important of the Federalist papers, probably up there with Federalist 10. I don't know if there are any that come before those two. Um, what is so uh, what's so important about this particular document? Yeah, so um, I think you're right. Uh, the number 10 and number 51 are the two um, most famous of the Federalist Papers. They're often the ones included um, at the back of a, of a college uh, textbook, uh, say an intro to U.S. politics textbook. Um, it's something that almost every student in a uh, internal U.S. politics course will read, even even if um, expertise of, of, of the professor doesn't doesn't lead towards things like the Federalist paper. So it's a very well-known text, and it's often taught in, in, in high school history classes. The, the punchline of Federalist 51 is separation of powers, and so it, it's probably the, the most straightforward and the clearest account of how to make separation of powers work. And so that's the reason for its fame, I think. Okay. Yeah, and I would I would just add to that too. It's it's uh, very quotable, right? It has some of the the best lines uh, in the, in the Federalist Papers. The you know ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The sentence about um, you know that uh, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. 
you know, the, those lines, I think, are, um, you know, one of the most recognizable, some of the most recognizable in the Federalist Papers. And so I think that contributes to, to, um, to, it, to its importance that these succinct, profound statements uh, kind of capture our, our imagination and our, our interest in, in what uh, Publius is getting at here. Well, let's talk a little about the uh, about the context for this. Uh, obviously, the uh, uh, the convention met in uh, in the summer of, of 1787, and there were a number of, uh, of, of broadsides quickly unleashed against it, um, uh, against its work. Uh, very important among these is uh, Sentinel Number One, provided here as a supplemental document of October 5th, 1787. Um, uh, Federalist 51 is, I take it, written in, in direct response to Sentinel-1. Is that, is that fair to say? Would you go ahead, Adam? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I think that arguments like those given in Sentinel-1 were, um, yeah, were what they were responding to here in, in Federalist 51, what Publius Madison was responding to here. Um, and actually, I think that, uh, so in a way, the Sentinel-1 uh, document shows um, one of the ways that Federalist 51, I think, helps explain Federalist 10, uh, because it adds uh, an element of the extended republic argument uh, from Federalist 10 that addresses uh, some of Sentinel's um, objections in, in a way that Federalist 10 doesn't. And, so I'm thinking specifically of the uh, the line in the Sentinel uh, document, and uh, I can't really reference the, the page number here, I guess, but uh, it says, if the administrators of every government are actuated by views of private interest and ambition, how is the welfare and happiness of the community to be the result of such jarring adverse interests? Hmm. Um, so from Federalist 10, we have sort of the image that I think is often uh, given in textbooks and assumed uh, when people are teaching teaching it that you have just jarring interests that uh, result in gridlock and, and don't go anywhere, right? That, that, that there's just sort of this uh, um, non-productive conflict of interests. And, and Sentinel uh, picks up on that and asks, how are we going to get any sort of, uh, of, of community of interest or agreement? And I think Federal 51, interestingly, does go beyond that in its, in its explanation of the extended republic and says uh, that justice is the end of government and that the expectation is that uh, that somehow that there will be a sort of substantial agreement produced after uh, the interests and ambitions uh, conflict and collide with one another. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily sort of magical in the way that Sentinel uh, uh, critiques it. So I think that there's at least a window into a solution to that problem of Federalist 10 that is given here in Federalist 51 that responds partly to Sentinel's uh, objection there. Okay, Jeremy? Yeah, um, one thing that I'd point to is, is the, the, in a way, they're talking to different audiences, uh, and are they they have different uh, assumptions. So, so the first sentence of Federalist 51 tells you a lot. To what expedient then shall we finally resort to maintain and practice the necessary partitions among among the government, or something like that? And so, so how how do we? So Federalist 51 is how do we maintain and practice separation of powers? Sentinel-1, Sentinel doesn't believe in separation of powers. So he's making a, a case against separation of powers. And so he's arguing for, for a simple government instead of a complex government. And what he means is, 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 is less separation, the better. Uh, so, for example, bicameralism, two houses, two legislative chambers, that's bad from Sentinel's perspective. 
Um, from Madison's perspective, every sensible person out there agrees the necessity of separation of powers. So, so Madison is not defending separation of powers. He's, he's, he's explaining how to get it. So mm. it to they, they have different objectives. Uh, what do we know about Sentinel? He is a uh, one of the Bryan uh, clan uh, okay. from 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 Pennsylvania, and he admires the Pennsylvania Constitution, which is the grand outlier, right, of the state constitutions. To this day, it's it's an outlier because it's a simple constitution. It has a unicameral legislature. Yeah, and his objection to a bicameral legislature is not so much that separation of powers is going to promote gridlock but that, uh, in fact, it's designed to bamboozle average people, right, and, and, and allow, uh, allow government to, uh, to pull a fast one, so to speak. Either of you care to, uh, care to comment on that? Yeah, go ahead, Adam. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's right. I mean, that's, that, that's one of the points that he uh, hits on over and over again is that, um, you know, responsibility to the people, that's the check, right? So, uh, whereas Madison has set up this elaborate system of a variety of checks, you know, within the institutions of government uh, and between government officials, the, the check that, that Sentinel is concerned with is just the simple check of the people on the government, right? The responsibility to the people. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's why a unicameral legislature is sufficient, because if you have sufficient dependence on the people, uh, if, as he says, the people are sufficiently virtuous, uh, then they will be jealous of their liberties. They will take their uh, representatives uh, to account for their their actions, and 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 you won't need any other checks, right? So, um, so I think that's right, um, and I think that to a certain extent, um, you know, we we do see the the element of realism that uh, is often uh, sort of you know the caricature of Federalist 51 that. Uh, we need more than just the check of the people that, that Madison says. We need more than that, right? Auxiliary, auxiliary precautions are necessary, uh, maybe partly because we can't rely on the virtue of the people um, and partly because that won't be sufficient in the extended republic. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think that's right. I think, and I think Madison doesn't uh, disagree, uh, obviously, with that primary point that the people are the, are the main check, right? The people are the main check on the government, uh, but that's not enough. So I think that's that's where the disagreement lies. Jeremy, anything to add to that? Yeah, uh, just, just one one other other point. Um, so Sentinel was talking a lot about John Adams. Uh, John Adams had, had had begun to release the early volumes of his defense of, of of the constitutions, and so he means the state constitutions. And that that's a defense basically of separation of power systems or, or complex systems against the 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 the, the alternative of, of a simple constitution come, coming out of French political thought from, from Turgot and others. And one of the things that Adams does is he, he connects separation of powers with what you might call the old mixed constitution. So in, in short, um, the upper chamber or the Senate is, is going to be something like a house of lords. It's going to be a place where, where, where aristocrats hang out. It, it's, we could talk more about Adams if we want, but uh, for uh, Sentinel, that's an opportunity for this bamboozling to happen. Is is that you're bringing you're bringing the orders to um, uh, the system that's going to obscure responsibility, or put it differently, it's going to stand away of responsiveness. And by giving giving the, these elites uh, a share of, of power to frustrate uh, responsive government. Okay. Uh, he also thinks that. Uh 
this proposed constitution has too much power over the states, does he not? Yeah, that's a standard. That's a standard anti-federalist argument, and that is the that's the big Kahuna. Um, they they see, I think, correctly that there's a kind of a zero-sum contest, um, and that uh, there's a transfer of power uh, and a transfer of wealth in terms of, of of tax revenue from going on from the states to the national government. And so everything is about Congress's power. In some sense, everything is secondary to that. Yeah. And standing army in time of peace shows up in uh, in in, uh, in capital letters. Adam. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I guess I would second everything uh, what Jeremy said, that this is a, you know, a standard uh, critique and, um, and one that, yeah, one that obviously, you know, Madison is at great pains both here, you know, here and in 10, Federalist 10, we get the big uh, extended Republic arguments. And so, uh, you know, part of, and again, this is particular to Madison, this, this argument really, but, um, part of what he's trying to show, right, is that those fears are unwarranted because because the national government's actually going to be better, right, than the than the state governments. Um, so that's part of what what Publius, what Madison is arguing here and in Penn um, to try to allay some of those fears. Well, that that a you know the the federal government is not going to railroad the state governments the way the anti-federalists fear, and b it actually uh, you know won't won't be a uh, distant tyrannical government, it, it will be better in some ways um, than the state governments for the reasons that he he lays out. Um, so I yeah I think he he partly tries to counter those arguments uh, through the extended republic argument as well. Okay, uh, right. So one of you know one of the themes here that Sentinel puts forward is that the, uh, a, a confederation of, of of small states even says, look, some of these big states are realizing they're too big and they want to break up. A confederation of small states that are in which the the the, govern, the governors are close to the governed is uh, is the way to go here. Uh, and that uh, Billy Gallagher asks a question on uh, on a related point. Uh, Billy says the only true check on the legislature would uh, the legislative rather would be election. If you don't like the result, then fix it at the polls next time. This is very much Sentinel's argument. Wasn't the congressional election of 1816 proof that such a check did work? What, 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 what do you have in mind at the election of 1816? All, all that comes to mind is the election of Monroe. So, so what, what's going on on the, on the Congress part of it? Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's see if Billy can get back to us with a, with a, a little more detail on what he, what he means by that. Uh, Larry Fada asks uh, a related question. Weren't some of these some of the fears expressed by Sentinel well founded? Uh, after all, the only office that the founders trusted the people to elect directly were members of the House. Yeah. So, okay. so um, the let's say that let, let me let me put it this way: uh, Sentinel's critique has been uh, echoed by uh, political science since the beginning of political science. And that is that political science has long wanted a parliamentary system um, that, that avoids uh, the complexities of the se separation of power system. And, and, to, and, and to, put it, to put it as clearly as possible, the assumption that, that Madison begins Federalist 51 with is, is that every sensible person believes that separation of powers is necessary. The question is, how do we get it? That, that's what Sentinel disputes. And that's also what, what, what modern day political science disputes. And they'd say, look, if you look at Japan, 
or or or, or England or, or or France. Uh, these are more or less well-functioning democracies, at least now. Uh, and there's nothing necessary about um, separation of powers if if your goal is preserving liberty. Adam, any? Uh... Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think uh, well, and you see, you know, more recently too, you know, that while the recurring uh, debates about the electoral college, right, that sort of is the flashpoint that brings this to people's minds. Um, uh, most particularly, but um, yeah, and also the debate about, well, are we a republic or a democracy, right, which was, um, you know, which is salient in some circles and was, of course, a big, uh, you know, a big deal at the time of the founding, maybe is less so now. I think there's, um, you know, it's it's not really the, the same issue that it was back then, but um, but yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think that's right. Although at the same time, I, I think that Madison and, uh, you know, in, in creating and arguing for the separation of powers system of government, um, I don't think that it was based on a an excessive mistrust of the people or of human nature, because I think that sometimes we forget, you know, we paint Madison, especially and Hamilton, perhaps as as elitists who are who don't trust the people. Right. And who are afraid of, of democracy and afraid of popular government. And so that's why they had to set up this government with all of these cumbersome checks and um, but I don't think that's entirely true, because I think that Madison is uh, also very committed to Republican government in the sense of government based on the people. And I think that there is a fundamental faith and trust in ordinary citizens, even in Madison's political thought, um, although I think it's, it's uh, more limited and balanced um, and tempered, uh, perhaps, than the, than the faith in the people that some of the anti-federalists um, uh, would have, or the Jefferson, for example, might have. Um, but I don't think that it's that he mistrusts the people or is overly or excessively uh, pessimistic. Is, is it, is, sorry, uh, Jeremy, go ahead. I was going to take another crack at that, and I'll try to do it in, 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 a, in a briefer way than I did before. Madison's response, I think, would be, look, the goal here is to secure rights. The goal here is not to, to, to create a responsive government. That's secondary to securing rights. And in order to secure rights, the executive and the legislative power can't be shared, period. That, that's the starting point. And so today, if you look at parliamentary democracy, where, there, where, where there's no judicial review, there's no veto, um, the executive and the legislative is all held by, by, the, by the same people. And that, that's essentially parliament. Um, and there, there is no check on that. And from Madison's perspective, that's, that's dangerous for rights. And so, so that's a non-starter. Okay. So is it fair to say that Madison's Madison is not so much uh, distrustful of the judgment of ordinary people, but skeptical of their ability to get good information. Look, I think that's possible, uh, and I think I think I think the way that that um, Adam put it out is also possible. Um, I my my take on on these questions with Madison is is, is that it, that it's kind of complex, and and, and that is that. Um, Separation, the, the, the system presumes um, that people are going to make mistakes in all sorts of venues. So, so the, the, people, the people might mess up, elites might mess up, uh, presidents might mess up, legislative uh, uh, persons might mess up. Um, and so it's, so it's not like trust is, is taken away from, from, from one group and given to another. Rather, it's, 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 it's a suspicion of any one, any one venue being, being the only venue that can, that can decide things. Okay. Adam, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, and I, yeah, I think uh, Jeremy made a good point when he said that securing rights is the primary goal for Madison, not not uh, 
democracy or, or representative government, that that's secondary to the goal of securing rights. And I think, yeah, too, that, uh, you know, that Madison and the framers were also concerned with uh, perpetuating the republic over time, right? And so if you, I mean, you can have a tremendous faith in people and yet think that over the course of hundreds of years, um, generations, that uh, circumstances will combine with personalities to produce um, a, a tyrannical or despotic government if the right securities aren't in place. So, so I think that that matters too, that uh, government can, can run fine for generations without uh, the checks in place that Madison uh, thought needed to be there. But uh, would it, would it uh, be, be sort of perpetuated you know, for, uh, for a longer period of time? Obviously, maybe not, not permanently, but um, so I think he was concerned with that too, right? Is there a sense in which uh, Sentinel and Madison are talking past one another? Because if, if, if Madison is, to put it in Jeremy's terms, interested in securing rights rather than having responsive government, here is Sentinel who really did, is, who, who said, well, if, you know, if you're so concerned with, with securing rights, why haven't you mentioned a single right in, the, uh, in, in this Constitution? Yeah, I mean, so 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 um, the, the 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 rights part is is a, is a is a is a talking point that the anti-federalists have have figured out, and that is that there's no bill of rights. So if you want to prove that this thing is really a conspiracy of, of the few against the many, the best way to, to to illustrate that quickly is to show there's no bill of rights. Um, as far as the rest of it, I, I think Sentinel is 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 mostly a kind of outlier, or put it differently, a state of Pennsylvania. Are the Pennsylvania opposition are, are, are mostly outliers, and since that they're more democratic, or, or you might even say more more radically democratic um, than than are other anti-federalist critics of the Constitution. Yeah, I guess I yeah I would add to that that um, yeah I mean clearly clearly the anti-federalists and Sentinel you know they have the better of that Bill of Rights argument and end up winning that uh, that argument. Uh, but I think that, yeah, first of all, that, um, you know, Madison is concerned with with natural rights and, you know, James Wilson, of course, and others and think that uh, think that, you know, parchment barriers in the Constitution won't uh, protect those sufficiently. Right. So the, so there is that that debate, but also that, Matt, you know, Madison, too, and they're not talking past each other in the sense that Madison is is concerned with representative government. It's just that he's he's concerned with it for the sake of. Uh, securing rights, and because it follows from uh, the the uh, demand of of right securing. So, uh, in Federalist Ten, for example, you know, representative government arises for Madison there as a modification of of democratic government, right? So, uh, so he is is uh, concerned for uh, democratic government. He's a proponent of it in a way, uh, but it's just not um, central as central for him as it is for the anti-Federalists. Uh, what really just one more uh, point on on Sentinel before we let him go and really dive into uh, into number fifty one. Um, what do you make of the fact that he closes with this quote from from Julius Caesar? Yeah, I I mean I was I was actually a little perplexed by that also when I first read it. You know, what does he mean by that? I mean I guess. Um, <clears throat> It seems to me that he's he's being, I guess, being ironic. Um, is was my my interpretation of that, um, and yeah, and I guess I won't elaborate on it further yet. But that's that was my interpretation. He's he's being ironic that Julius Caesar 
um, you know, says this. And the, the government, the new federal government, will be tyrannical as Julius Caesar was. Right. Who's the speaker? Do we know? Is it Brutus or is it? Uh... That's a good question. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know if we have any uh, any Shakespeare experts among us who would uh, who would send me a message indicating that. I can't I can't consult Doctor Google right now. All right, so uh, so why don't we jump into uh, into fifty one? Of course, his uh, his his great central point is this uh is this idea that an extended republic is going to uh is going to be able is going to provide safeguards uh against um against tyranny in a way that a bunch of small uh, small states loosely united in a confederation will not be uh be able to do um how, how do we how how can we assess the, the merit of this? I'm putting, I don't know if I'm putting this the best way, but um, Sentinel is so convinced that he has the, the right of the argument that, that the bigger we make this thing, the more distant government is going to be from, from, uh, from the, 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 sov the, the, the sovereign, right? that is the people. Um, how do we determine which, rather than, rather than uh, in, instead of just resorting to experience and say, well, we've gotten this far? Okay, well, I, I mean, so what you're talking about is basically the, the uh, I'm not sure you can hear me because now I see spinning, but I'm going to keep on talking. Uh, I hear you. Okay, good. Um, you're talking about the, the, the kind of the miniature presentation of Fed 10 at, at the end of, of, of Federalist 51. And so that, that's the argument for the extended republic. And basically, uh, to, to make the case for, for Sentinel, uh, it would be that Sentinel has the vast majority of conventional wisdom on his side. And that conventional wisdom would be that in order for a republican government to work, uh, people have to trust uh, their, their neighbors and they have to, to trust uh, th those in power. And so that's going to require proximity to, to neighbors and proximity to those in power. It's going to require similarity to those neighbors and, and similarity to those in power. Um, to, you know, to, to, to make a point that somebody else does, you know, how, how can I trust my neighbor's vote or value his vote if I, if I think my neighbor is doomed to spend eternity in hell? Um, so, so if there's not sameness about the most important questions, how are we ever going to value each other's um, votes on, on, on political questions. And that's, the, that's the, the, the conventional wisdom. And so here, Madison is, is the, you know, the innovative thinker and is um, going against conventional wisdom uh, with this rather audacious argument that, that rights will be better secured in this big, extensive republic. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, this, this argument, too, was not one that was widely shared among uh, among those at the convention or among, uh, you know, Madison's friends and friends and fellow uh, framers, you know, that he, this was, this was uh, idiosyncratic, uh, you know, to, to Madison. And, um, and, you know, it's not, it's not something that persuaded a lot of people at the time, actually, as far as I know, um, it wasn't particularly influential. Um, but of course, it's ingenious. And, and he, um, you know, he states it in a compelling way. But, um, yeah, but I think that that uh, others at the time weren't persuaded by it, and I think that it's difficult to 
Uh, it's difficult to say, you know, well, to point out ways in which this has been proven to be uh, to be the case, to be accurate. Um, there might be ways, you know, there might be instances that we could argue about. Um, but, but yeah, in terms of assessing its success, I mean, it wasn't particularly persuasive at the time. And as ingenious as it is, it's hard to say, um, you know, whether it's more persuasive than the alternative today, I guess. Well, I, I would, I mean, if you wanted to make the case for it, the, the case, the case would be um, that this has become perhaps the single greatest American idea, uh, you know, may, maybe with the exception of religious toleration, but, but the, the idea that, that uh, diversity is, is good, um, that uh, if not diversity, pluralistic bargaining is good, that, um, and there's subtle differences with, with, with Madison's argument, but, but, but the big picture is that uh, having lots of interests contending uh, will, will over time uh, be, be better for the common good rather than fewer interests. And um, th there's something I think uh, to be said for that, and it's certainly uh, come to be accepted as, as, as rather normal in American politics. And, and, and as, as our, uh, I, I, would, I would argue the default position that most Americans hold today. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, it's, I think that that's a good point. Um, yeah, sort of the pluralist uh, interpretation of it there. I mean, but uh, yeah, but I, I guess, so, but that's, I think, perceived as both good and bad, right? That, uh, you know, sort of the, um, you know, interest group politics is not, is not uh, looked at favorably by most people today, even if pluralism is, right? So, um, and I think that in 51, Madison does point also to, as he puts it, you know, a, um, a coalition of a majority of the whole society, which could take place on, uh, you know, which says it could seldom take place on any other principles than those of justice and the general good, uh, which again, it seems to me to go beyond 10, because it seems to indicate that that a, a coalition is possible that will occur on the basis of justice and the general good, which is somewhat different from the clash of interests and yeah. sort of mechanistic argument that uh, that people often take it to be. So, but no, I, I, I see I see your point, um, your point there, um, yeah. Have we have we lost um, John? I hope not. I don't see him anymore. Does that mean that we still have uh, an audience? Uh, prob probably. Um, if you're the Ashbrook uh, tech person helping out, why don't you let us know what what's up with that? And I, I suppose you could give one of us access to questions. Um, uh, Well, yeah, yeah, because I can't see the questions that are coming in either, I don't think. Is there a way that we can see chatted, chatted? Oh, yeah, we can see questions. Um, okay. Oh, yeah, so somebody says run with it, play off each other until John gets back. Oh, there we go. Okay, okay. All right. great, All that right. confirms it. Yeah. Um, so what, one thing I would say is that is that the, the, the second part of Federalist 51 is, is not, not the reason why we read Federalist 51. Uh, it, it's, it's rather the first part. Hmm. Um, yeah, about how the, the parchment barriers and the separation of powers doesn't work unless, uh, unless there are mechanisms in place to ensure it'll work in practice. Yeah, so why, why don't you say more about that? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I think... Um, 
Yeah, I guess that is why we read it, right? The checks and balances, right? That um, the personal motives and constitutional means, right? As, as he says there, uh, that that's what will ensure um, the separation of powers and practice. And that's, you know, that's something too, I think that if we're talking about, uh, you know, how, how, to, uh, how to teach this in relation to the, the group of, of papers that it's a part of, that, that all of these checks and balances, the mechanisms that uh, Publius is talking about here are for the sake of ensuring the separation of powers, which in turn is for the sake of, as you said, securing rights, preserving liberty, right? That, uh, that these aren't there for their own sake, that, we, that Madison is not arguing for a sort of, um, you know, a, a government that doesn't do anything and that is always just, uh, you know, stepping over itself and uh, conflictual, right? He's arguing for um, something that will preserve the separation of powers. Um, so I think that that's important to note, too, that checks and balances are for the sake of separation of powers rather than the other way around. Um, um, yeah, and I think you see that when you put, you know, read 51 after uh, the group from 47 uh, or 46, really, onward. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Okay, yeah, so uh, I'll follow that up. Uh, I can see the questions now, so participants can keep on asking questions. I can see them. And so I'll, I'll field questions uh, in our conversation. I, I, I'm back now too. I don't know what happened. I, I got I got kicked out, and it wouldn't let me log back in until just until just now. So my apologies. All right, scratch that. Uh, well, while John's getting back, let me let me. Well, you I, I well I actually none of the questions that were here are, are showing up for for me now. So you might as well go ahead. Uh, somebody got back to us, and the speaker uh, they say was Brutus. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that says a lot. Why why um, Julius Caesar was 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 quoted? Um, yeah, it's, it, that 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 changes changes things. Uh, I think I think considerably. Um, yeah, of course, of course Brutus Brutus being uh, the the good guy from the perspective of of the anti federalist. Um, one one well, other, and, uh, that that would have been the I mean the, the the history of the Roman Republic would have been the great example of. Uh, uh, or the collapse of the republic would have been the great example offered by critics of the uh, of the constitution, uh, simply because it seemed to suggest exactly what they were talking about. Rome was able to maintain these institutions; uh, they were robust as long as Rome remained relatively small. But then, as it became a global empire, it simply couldn't support it. These institutions. So, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good, good. Um, there, there is a, it reminds me there, there's speaking of the Federalist Papers, there's a, I think there's a kind of joke in, in Federalist 70, which, which begins with the praise of the Roman dictator. Um, mm -hmm. Hamilton yep. published Fed 70 on March 15th, which, which I think is kind of funny, but. Um, that is good. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your, uh, the point you were making, Jeremy. No, just that I said that the Hamilton uh, publishes that praise of, of the Roman dictator on, on March 15th. So that, that's Fed 70. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I don't know if you've got more questions for us, John. Turn it back over to you. Yeah. Uh, the questions that were here are now gone, unfortunately, um, since I logged out and re-logged in. Um, there was one uh, about uh, the presence of parties and whether that might the the formation of parties might have uh, might have uh, or national political parties might have undermined the uh, uh, the strengths of of the extended republic. I, I think I'm getting the gist of that. 
So I yeah. So let me let me. I, I so I think I think the question is in reference to separation of powers. Um, and so 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 the the the, the short answer is yes, of course, uh, because now you have uh, a unity between the executive and the legislative legislative through through parties and partisanship that, that wouldn't be there uh, naturally, um, and that does all sorts of of, of, of odd things, um, and. Uh, so, so just that the, the most immediate way to, to, to think about this, maybe to teach your students, is, is the veto power. Um, last time I checked, like only 8% of vetoes have been overridden. I think it's fair to say that, that the framers would have expected the rate to be higher, uh, that there would be more, con more, more over overridden mm -hmm. uh, vetoes. There have been two impeachments and, and, and zero removals and impeachments, of course, in terms of presidents. Um, that's, of course, because of the supermajority requirement in, in our two-party system. It's, it's virtually impossible to get two-thirds uh, vote on anything. Um, so it makes it very hard to impeach and remove a president, way harder than the framers would have expected, I would, I would argue. And that, that's a, uh, a very important change in our system because, because it liberates presidents in a way that they wouldn't be liberated uh, otherwise because impeachment is effectively off the table. And, and, and finally, uh, it makes treaties uh, rather hard, too, with, with the two-thirds requirement. Uh, and so, so treaties become increasingly less attractive, uh, and, and, and all sorts of um, devices are now, now in place to do in-runs around treaties, have, have trade agreements, uh, executive agreements, uh, so on, that, that don't require the, 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 the supermajority requirements of the treaty process. Yeah, I think that's right. Oh, anything parties, on that? Yeah. yeah, yeah, they do. I think they do. Um, yeah, do a lot to overcome and affect uh, the separation of powers as originally designed. I mean, I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, how they affect the uh, extended republic argument part of, of 51 is is a I guess is a different question, right? And um, and in that case, it's less clear that uh, that parties short circuit or overcome or affect the um, the operation of the extended republic. In fact, they may uh, they may help it work in some ways by sort of uh, collecting within within themselves different interests and, and factions and uh, and producing a, a more coherent policy agenda or platform or uh, you know out of out of these clashing interests than would otherwise be there. So they might actually help in some ways, perhaps the operation of the extended republic. But yeah, with respect to separation of powers, undoubtedly parties are, um, you know, are, are inimical to the, the separation that was originally instituted. Yeah, let me, let me uh, now take the other side of that and say, look, um, separation of powers in a way endures uh, remarkably in, in spite of, of parties. Uh, and so there are lots of things that you, on one hand, we, or, or to put it differently, it's too tempting to say parties changed everything. Uh, and, and so uh, if the goal of separation of power, or, or let me scratch that. If the argument of Federalist 51, we haven't really talked about it yet, but if the argument is how to make separation of powers work, the question is that. And the answer to that is give each department a will of its own. And so what happens is that the, the, the Constitution is designed to give each department its own will or its own personality or its own character. And that personality or character endures in spite of political parties. Um, and so um, presidents of both parties come to accept a certain notion of the war power that, that privileges the president. 
so that that's not really a partisan question. That becomes an institutional question. Um, Congress, uh, the, the opposition party, they, they kind of switch back and forth, but there does seem to be congressional positions on certain issues about spending and taxation uh, that, that Congress is, is careful to watch over. Uh, these aren't merely partisan. Some of them remain institutional. Uh, and that's certainly true of judges. Uh, judges are, are, are very careful, uh, even as they are, you know, casting votes on, on, on questions that have partisan debates to them. Judges are very careful to make sure they're doing so in ways that enhance or at least maintain their own power. And so they have to think institutionally in addition to thinking partisanly. And that, I think, is uh, uh, evidence that, that, that separation of powers does work, at least according to its design, in spite of the political parties. Yeah. Okay. I think that's right. And so, to, to um, the frustration of, of a, I think to the frustration of some who wish that parties, when they were in power, could simply enact their policy agenda, right? Um, like you know, political scientists historically, with the dreams of a responsible party system, where parties could come into power and and enact their policy agenda. Separation of powers did you know has frustrated that. So I think that that's right. Yeah. Um, I've heard back from Billy Gallagher, who uh, gives a little bit, a little more on uh, what he was driving at by uh, in, by uh, invoking the uh, uh, the 1816 election. Uh, Congress wanted to raise their pay, so they voted to do so. Uh, this uh, was not uh, this this did not meet well with the people who voted out those who had supported the congressional pay raise in 1816. Um, so I, I th th that. So back to his original question, does this not show that the voters themselves are a significant check against the, uh, uh, against the power of the legislature without having to divide it? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a nice example. Um, you know, the, the, the reality is, is that uh, today uh, members of Congress are virtually unbeatable. Incumbents can't lose. The only, the only way to get in Congress is, is to hope that, you know, somebody dies or has a scandal and then, then you move to their district and run. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so you're not going to beat a sitting incumbent. And, and that's certainly different than, 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 than the, the framers expectations. And so at the level of responsiveness, uh, it turns out that, that in some respects, the president is more responsive uh, than, than say, say, the House. Uh, and and that, that would be something that Sentinel would have not predicted. I, I would have. I, I mean, if I were Sentinel, I would say that shows how uh, how the the districts are simply too large, right? One of the reasons why it's so difficult to uh, to get rid of somebody who uh, who get rid of a, a seated member of Congress is that uh, there are simply too many voters out there for each uh, for each district. Yeah, maybe, or or or, or, or maybe it's because they're too gerrymandered. I mean, they're 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 you know various explanations. Yeah, sure. Okay, uh, uh, another question. Um, Federalist 51 emphasized authority and ambition. Uh, so uh, the questioner is asked, thinking of Jackson in this setting as an executive, uh, would Madison reconsider or agree with Jackson's famous quote, Marshall made his ruling, let him enforce it? Okay, so um, my, my take on this is, um, just in terms of the narrow example, uh, uh, without getting to the, to the weeds, my understanding is is that this is a, um, 
in a way, a, a kind of a, a comment or an apocryphal comment that that didn't really have relevance. There was nothing for Jackson to do at the level of, of federal enforcement of this decision. Um, so it's not like Jackson withheld action um, in, in Worcester v. Georgia. Um, but that's my understanding, the narrow thing. But, but, but the, the principle is, is, is way more interesting. And, and, and the principle is, is um, to what extent did, did Madison believe in something like coordinate review or departmentalism? Uh, as, as an alternative to, to, to judicial review, interpreted as judicial finality, that is, the judges at the final say on the Constitution. And, 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 and I think it's clear, it doesn't come out in the Federalist, but it comes out uh, very quickly as early as 1789, that, that Madison believes that each department may interpret the Constitution for itself. And that's what Jackson says in, in his bank veto statement. So that's been way the better, the better Jackson example. Uh, and, and that, I think, Madison more or less agrees with it, with, with some caveats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the, the principle that each department should have a will of its own that's reflected uh, in that example as well. I mean, I think that that's something, you know, Madison would have, uh, you know, would have been in favor of the fact that it's not, uh, it's not a given that when one department uh, does something, say makes a law, uh, you know, that the, that the executive will, um, you know, will, will enforce it just as the, as the, legislative um, lays out, right? That the, that the executive has a will of its own as well. Uh, it has a job to do in, in executing the law. Um, but I think that uh, the separation of powers uh, scheme um, uh, allows for that. And, um, and, and that's a sign that it's functioning, I think, that, that it's not running as a, as a, you know, a, a finely tuned machine where uh, there's no um, no pause from the process of legislating to executing to judging, right? I think that that to have those um, the different wills in each department in place, I think that that's reflected in that example, and Madison would have been in favor of that. Okay, um, uh, David Cedar uh, says the idea that a second chamber would represent the interests of the elite against the many seems to be the overriding argument against bicameralism. However, in, to modern minds, this seems a bit disingenuous because only property owners, and one might add white male property owners, could actually vote at, um, at, in the uh, you know, immediate, uh, in, in the early republic, let's say, pre-Jackson. Uh, when one says that the more simplistic st structure is beneficial to the general interest of the public, the danger of the general interest does seem more pronounced with a concentration of power in just one branch with no counterbalancing power. Here to comment on that. Yeah. Okay. So let, let me let me address uh, first a little bit of, of clutter, and that's that's the property stuff. Uh, it's not the case that 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 uh, voting was was um, uh, extended only to whites, uh, and it's not that the case that voting was extended only to property owning whites uh, in the beginning. That uh, there are exceptions to that in, in a variety of states. Um, uh, another complicated example is is, is Massachusetts did. Uh, have property qualifications for voting, uh, yet the Massachusetts uh, Constitution was was ratified by by every uh, male regardless of, of property, and so in Massachusetts the requirement of property to to vote was actually approved by those who were not going to be allowed to vote, so that they in fact voted not to allow themselves to vote, or at least they to participate in that process. So, so the property stuff is complicated. Now, but but back to the Senate. What, what, in, in my view, what you have uh, is, um, um, and not, I'm not using this in, in a pejorative sense, 
there's a kind of a, an incoherence with, with respect to, to the purpose of a Senate. And there, there are th sort of three, three possibilities. One is the John Adams possibility, and that is you need a place, an upper chamber, to stick the aristocrats because they're going to call, well, in John Adams' example, it, it, they're going to cause trouble, and so better give them a, a home. Uh, and they're going to be able um, uh, to be isolated that way, and the executive and the lower house will be able to team up against them. That, that's the logic for John Adams. For others, uh, you need that upper house of elites in order to give property representation, to give the, the wealthy uh, a say in the making of law. For others, uh, a Senate is necessary simply as a feature of bicameralism, that there is, there is no normative principle associated with it. It's, it's rather just a second chamber uh, operating in order to make it harder to pass laws. It turns out for that group of people, it's very convenient that the Senate becomes a venue for state equality, for the kind of compromise to go through, and for rep uh, uh, federalism to be represented again in, in, in the U.S. Constitution. And so in that sense, this is not a question of wealth or a representation of wealth, but rather uh, uh, a channel by which the, the federal, the, the compromises over the federal relationship would work. Now, Different people in the convention have different reasons then for supporting the Senate. That that's the point. Okay. All right. Yeah. So that that argument of Adams, um, that sounds like uh, Machiavelli in the discourses. You have to give the uh, you, you have to give the elites, the property owners, a stake in the system, or else they'll bring it all down. Is is uh, is that where Adams got that? Yeah, it, it's there. Uh, go go ahead, Adams. It's, yeah, uh, I was gonna say. I think. Yeah, I think that is there. I think. Uh, yeah, and, and he cites Machiavelli, uh, I think, as well, fairly frequently. So I think Adams would admit that, that it's, it's Machiavellian. Um, yeah. And I would add to just what, yeah, what, what Jeremy said there. Yeah, that, I mean, another per reason that's given in, um, I think it's in 47 for having it to the bicameral legislature is simply to weaken it because the legislature is the most powerful uh, branch of government, right? That uh, talking about the checks and balances, part of the way you're going to balance the government is by weakening the legislature as a whole. And if you have two separate chambers with two different uh, personalities or functions, um, then they will uh, check each other and, and weaken the, the legislature as a whole. So I would add add that um, as well. Well, this gets uh, us this this gets us directly uh, to a question from Larry Fata. Uh, along those lines, I've always found it fascinating that Madison envisioned the legislative as the quote-unquote dangerous branch that needed to be more uh, hemmed in, while the executive was in need of fortifying. Um, of course, you know that, that seems odd today, considering at least the, the 20th century has been the story of the, uh, the quote-unquote imperial presidency. Um, it is... It is uh, the question is, is, is uh, how did this happen? And can the pendulum swing back? Okay, so um, so, so the passage uh, begins, uh, the paragraph in Fed 51, it's a couple paragraphs in, but it is not possible to give each department equal power of self-defense. The Republican government, the legislature necessarily predominates. The remedies divide in two, and then to give each different set of principles and, and motive of action. That, that's, that's the idea that, that, that he's talking about. Um, and so, so he's right, the questioner is right, that you can't understand separation of powers without understanding that it's uh, about controlling the legit, or better yet, the way to solve separation of powers in the United States is to fix the problem of legislative tyranny. Uh, so for example, Federalist 9 refers to checks and balances, but it calls them legislative checks and balances. And so we teach checks and balances, but Publius only talks of legislative checks and balances. 
Uh, that, that's another example of that. Um, but the explanation for that, one is theoretical. I think that's less interesting. Uh, the historic explanation in this case is that they just endured from, from, from this perspective, um, a decade of legislatures gone crazy and they're trying to fix what they see as, as a problem. And so they, they all believe in separation of powers. The Virginia constitution of 1776 begins with more or less thou shalt have separation of powers. Uh, so, so it wants separation of powers, but in practice, the, the legislative uh, power had taken over the powers of the other two branches. So fixing that was, was the, the, the goal here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think uh, in terms of what, um, yeah, what's happened, why that hasn't been the case, um, you know, how it could be, uh, how the legislature could be, you know, fixed if it needs fixing. I mean, I think uh, that's right, that definitely it hasn't, uh, our experience hasn't borne out the dangers of the legislature, maybe partly because they, uh, they were so effective, you know, the, the splitting into the two houses, and maybe, maybe that was part of it. I think the sheer size of the, uh, of the Congress um, and, you know, relative to the executive and the court, um, that, that it requires deliberation and discussion and, uh, you know, the adjustment of interests and all those sorts of things that um, I think have, have always been, been difficult, but in the extended republic and over time, uh, it's gotten more and more difficult to deliberate in common as a body in, in Congress. And so I think that uh, that has contributed to it, I think, the sheer number of people and their inability to deliberate effectively in common. Yeah. Let, me, let me push back on the question, too, in another way, and that is with, with respect to the current, our current politics. And so, so we talk about an imperial presidency, and I think it's clear that, that, that Americans have asked which branch is most dangerous, they, they probably wouldn't name Congress first. They'd probably say the president. Um, that being said, it seems like what, 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 what our, the, the 20th century shows us is that, that, that Congress, when it pass, it, it's, it's either paralyzed or, or when it passes major legislation, it's legislation that is totally burdened and, and, and changed and transformed by, by narrow interest affecting narrow groups. Um, and what you see, on the other hand, is a president trying to fight for, for the, the, the whole United States, trying to push policies that the president says are in the public good, and, and a reluctant Congress or an ineffective Congress. Um, that story is not one of the president being able to actually get what he wants. This is mostly a story of presidential failure. And we go through president after president after president where these signature accomplishments are, are just, just decimated by Congress. Um, and so it, it seems to me that the action is still in Congress, or to put it differently, the potential danger is still in Congress. Um, that there's that the, the, the potential danger is not not really with the president, and, and we could think about a whole litany of policies that, that are in the air today, and basically everybody's waiting for for the next shoe to drop, and that shoe is will Congress be able to pass a law that the administration wants? That's that's a terrific point. Yeah. Um, in the the brief time remaining, uh, can we bring Federalist Number Forty Seven into this? How does this uh, how does this uh, contribute to the argument? Go ahead, Adam. Well, I think that uh, I mean by giving going through each state constitution, uh, you know, and showing uh, showing the ways in which each of them, although they uh, profess to have to endorse separation of powers in principle, that uh, in practice that the uh, the powers are you know they overlap and are mixed in various ways. Um, that I think that I think that's a you know it's an effective argument that he gives here to show that 
um, the principle as the anti-federalists understand it and as they're they're pushing it, um, you know, must be not quite the strict version of it that uh, that they're giving, right? That really um, uh, separation of powers does not require a, an absolute separation, so the Constitution can't be criticized on those grounds. And so the examples of the state constitutions um, is, you know, is, is helpful, I think, for, for that argument that Publius is making. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so the punchline, just to repeat the point, the punchline is that separation of powers does not mean no mixing. Separation of powers means no control of the other branch, which fits with number 51, no control of the will of another branch. So, so the will is the key. The, the other passage in, in, in Fed 47 that, that I think is, is probably the, the, the best is, is it's, I think it's the third paragraph where he says, no political truth is, cer is certainly of greater intrinsic value or stamp, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, then the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands, whether one of few or many, et cetera, et cetera, whether hereditary, self-employed, whatever, blah, blah, yada, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. So it doesn't matter if it's the one, the few, or the many. It doesn't matter if it's hereditary, elective, whatever. If you combine the legislative power and the executive power in the same hands, that's tyranny. And that's striking for another reason, too, that it's not, it's not the uh, tyrannical operation of government that's accumulated, you know, all these powers in the same hands, but it's the mere accumulation, which I think is also noteworthy. Yeah, 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 right. So, so, and, and, and so that is, I think, in, in a way, I mean, it's an opportunity to, to reflect, you know, on, that, on, 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 on the, the truth of that statement. And so um, if, if my university president can, can um, uh, do anything, uh, is, is that the very definition of tyranny? Mm -hmm. Even if he doesn't do anything. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I would say the, the answer to that is yes. Right. Uh, that, that, that I would like to see, you know, uh, the, the president be guided by things like a faculty handbook. Uh, I would like some of the powers to be carved out and given to the provost. Uh, and and that uh, the, these are these are things that uh, we, we see as ordinary in, in the usual course of things. Uh, for another example is if, if, you, if you disagree with something, um, you don't attack the, the, the substance, you, you call it unilateral. And by calling it unilateral, you've somehow, um, you know, changed it. That if the person is, is making this decision, uh, acting and, and, and deliberating all by themselves, then, then there's, some, there's something, you know, iffy about it. Um, yeah. and, this, and this goes back to Montesquieu's definition of, of liberty in the spirit of the laws, which is the opinion of security as well. So Montesquieu is cited later, but I think they're, they're thinking about his definition of liberty here as well, because it's not, he, he defines it not as the enjoyment of actual liberty, of the actual uh, of security, but the opinion of your security, right? All right. Well, that is about all the time we have tonight. I want to thank both of our panelists, Adam and Jeremy, as well as our participants for the great questions they offered. Just a reminder, uh, you will be receiving an email with a link for a certificate of participation if you would like one. Uh, if you have enjoyed today's webinar, please consider taking an online graduate course through the Ashford Center. These are offered as part of our uh, Master of Arts in American History and Government program. This is something near and dear to my heart and is also a program in which both uh, Adam and Jeremy are, are, are regular, uh, regular members of our faculty. Uh, you can find more information about Ashbrook's online course offerings at teachingamericanhistory.org. You can also help us spread the word about these programs by sharing the archive link, which you'll receive by email next week. 
please share that with your colleagues and on social media if you're a social media person. Our next Documents in Detail webinar will be Wednesday, October 18th. Our subject that evening will be the Monroe Doctrine. At that time, I'll be, enjoyed by, uh, I'll be joined by Dr. Eric Pullen of Carthage College and Dr. Jay Sexton of the University of Missouri. You probably know him, Adam. Uh, the uh, recommended readings for that webinar have already been posted. So we hope to see you back here on October 18th. Thanks again, and have a great evening. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs, at TAH.org webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.